One Halloween party, my friend dressed up as me. At the clothing. Did he wear thing. your clothes? Oh yeah. Did he like? He was a much prettier me than I could ever be. <laughs> Did he dye his hair? Did he have the right hair color already? No, he was wearing a bright orange wig. Mm. Like yeah. a clown. I dressed or up like as. Matt. I dr- oh, there you go. I dressed <laughs> yeah, up as Doctor yeah. last year. No, the year before. The Jogcast is their life on ExoMars. We have Alex Clark, Luke Hart, Minnie Mao, Max Potter, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, October 2016, Extra Edition. Hello everyone, welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie, and joining me in the studio today are Minnie. Hello! And Max. Hello! In the show this time, Max and Luke interview Professor Tetsuo Hatsuda about quarks and neutron stars, and Ian answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Charlie interviews Mitch Michalija in this month's Jod Bite. For this month's Jod Bite, I'm joined by Mitch Michalija from JBCA. Welcome to the Jogcast. Thank you. Is this your first time here? It is, yes. Could you uh, tell us to start off a little bit about uh, what you do, who you work with here at Jodrell Bank? Yeah, so... It's a bit varied. So I'm officially an SKA engineer uh, working on Pulsar Search with Ben Stappers, but I also work within the wider Pulsar group, uh, again with Ben Stappers, studying pulsars and fast radio bursts. And all sorts of transient phenomena in the radio. Yes, yes. All sorts, you know, fast radio bursts in general, but yes, on a, on a wider scale, pretty much anything. So as as fast radio bursts are a more modern phenomenon compared to pulsars, which have been around for fifty almost fifty years now, have you only just started working on them because they've picked up off? Or well, so initially when I applied to grad school, I was going to work with Duncan Lorimer, um, and pretty much around the time I applied, he had just found the, the Lorimer burst, which was the first FRB, the most famous plot in the history of FRBs. Yes. And and also still the the strongest FRB ever seen. Mm -hmm. But so I I went, so that was at, when when I applied was in the spring of 2007. um, And he had just found the signal. And then I started in August. So I started working on that. But then the the field kind of died away a bit because there were, peritons were found soonish after that, maybe a year after they started to find peritons. And it started to cast a lot of doubt onto whether FRBs were real, plus n- no other FRBs were seen after that. I, I, Well, I was looking for a host galaxy for it, but I couldn't find it, and people weren't very interested in wasting telescope time to look for one since there was, you know, growing doubt about the field. So we were trying to get money for a new project to look for FRBs, just use three unused telescopes at the at the Green Bank site to do just a dedicated all, well, not all sky, but a, some sort of drift scan survey pointed in three different directions. So you'd map out three strips of the sky and just look for FRBs. Um, but that that didn't get funded for, for a number of reasons. One, of course, being that, you know, the, the, the field was kind of dying away. Nobody was really interested. Everybody thought these things were fake. Uh, so I, I pretty much just stuck with normal pulsar research for a few years. 
And then all of a sudden, near the end of my PhD, a bunch were found and everybody was like, oh my God, they're real. Yeah, we need to study these. So it was, it was good timing for coming here because I came here shortly after um, those discoveries. I think, yeah, within a year of those discoveries here, I got the job here. So we've had um, a lot of lingo thrown out there. So very quickly, let's do a little bit of jargon busting. We've had Emily Petroff on in the past to talk yes. about peritons. Okay. We've had other people to talk about FRBs as well. But I was wondering if you could give us a, a quick recap of what those two things are and why they're so synonymous with pulsar research itself. Okay. So start with the FRB. So fast radio burst. It is a signal that comes from space. It's astronomical. The reason that we, that pulsar astronomers found them is because they are dispersed because they are astronomical. So the, the signal is swept in frequency. So your lower frequencies arrive later. So when we're searching for pulsars, we are looking for signals of similar durations, right? Because we, we, we have to sample data very, very quickly to detect pulsars that are spinning with a few millisecond spin period. So if there is a, a fast radio burst that has a width of on the order of five milliseconds, say, and we're able to detect a five millisecond pulsar, well, then we should be able to detect the fast radio burst. And I mean, these, these fast radio bursts more or less look like a bright single pulse from a pulsar, except we only ever see one, except for the one repeating fast radio burst. But Which has only just been that. discovered. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a puzzle. We've got an interview coming up about that with Laura Spitler. Oh, nice. So paratons, on the other hand, are terrestrial signals that look like fast radio bursts. So the name, paratons in mythology, is something like a half stag, half horse, something that has the shadow of a man. So more, pr pretty much it's something that looks like something else. So these paratons were seen, and they, they were fairly obviously terrestrial interference because, so the system where fast radio bursts were first discovered was the Parkes multi-beam. So the Parkes radio telescope in Australia. Yes. So it has a multi-beam receiver. So it has 13 beams on the sky. And this, this Lorimer burst, the first fast radio burst found, was, was detected in three beams. So the, the, the beams don't overlap. So it's looking at three different areas in the sky. Once. Three or thirteen. Thirteen in total, yes. So three three close by beams detected this event. So you kind of assume it came from somewhere between those three beams. And was so strong that it spilled over. Yeah. Okay. Yes. The 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 beams have a width, but they're sensitive outside of that width. Uh the signal just happened to be strong enough where it was detected actually quite strongly in all three beams. These paratons, on the other hand, were pretty much detected in all of the beams. Which would mean that they're either really, really strong. Yeah, I mean, in, it, it, pretty much infeasibly strong or close. right? Because if you have some astronomical source, it's going to be a point in the sky because everything's far away, everything looks small. Whereas something that's close looks very large. So any interference you're most likely going to see in all of the beams. So these paratons were seen in all of the beams. Interestingly, had the exact same what we call DM, so dispersion measure. So this is this uh, frequency-dependent sweep I mentioned. And that sweep was identical to this Lorimer burst sweep. 
So people thought maybe the Lorimer Burst was one of these paratons, although the Lorimer Burst wasn't seen in all 13 beams. This dispersion sweep is always very smooth if it's real, but there were some weird cusps. Small, hard to see, but they were there in the paratons. So, I mean, most people weren't very optimistic about FRBs at that point. But there was still evidence that they were real, so Dunk very much, year after year, kept trying to to get people to put money towards finding them. And if there was so much doubt about them being real signals, why were some parts of the astronomical community so excited about finding them? What What is it that makes them that interesting? That if there's one, and you don't quite know it's real, and there are lots of fake things that look the same, why do you keep hunting for them? Pretty much because we have no clue what they are. So this is something we've never seen before. We, I mean, we, we have more theories for what they are than there are actual events. Right? So this is just new science. So, I mean, everybody wants to find new science. I mean, we, we all day to day study things that we know about, but you know, everybody wants to find something new. Theorists always want to be proven wrong and observers always want to, to look for something and find something else. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with, with the SK, at least people are talking about it quite heavily now. You say you're going to do a whole bunch of things, and they're going to give you all these science results, and they're going to be amazing, but then 90% of the science that comes out of a survey with a telescope like that is stuff you didn't even know existed. It's the really exciting stuff. Things we, we didn't know existed in the universe, or processes we didn't know that existed in the universe, or sources that we didn't know existed. So, I mean, people were, were very keen to find more they just weren't willing to put any real effort in. They were also keen to disprove peritons um, and sort of distinguish them from FRBs. So what happened at the end of that story? Once more actual FRBs were detected here, people were fairly certain they were distinct from peritons, especially with this cuspiness in the dispersion sweep of the peritons. Maybe two years ago now, some sometime recently, after after studying these peritons for a while, they determined that they came from uh, microwave ovens. <laughs> so in if, the lunch hall. In the lunch hall. So one of the statistics they did was looking at the arrival times of the periton across the hours in a day, and they kind of correlate around noon. There's more peritons around noon, whereas if you plot the FRBs, they come whenever, mm. because that makes sense, right? There's no reason that an FRB from space should know how fast the Earth rotates. And I think the the peritons generally showed up stronger when they were pointing in the direction of the visitor center. And they found out that if the cooks in the visitor center were opening the microwaves before the microwave turned off, it would cause some sort of ring down in the magnetron that would emit a frequency a frequency swept signal, the sweep. So pretty much what you what you measure as the DM changes. Uh, between models of microwave, but it's always around three to four hundred or so, which is which was the DM of the uh, the Lorimer burst. I think the, I think the Lorimer burst DM was three seventy five. And this sounds really funny, really hilarious. The astronomers were detecting their lunch, and um, and so they they weren't finding any science there. But this is a, a common problem with radio astronomy in general, isn't it? The the interference of things in everyday life that that can sort of get in the way of radio astronomy. And you do a bit of work on that. It, it is a problem because you you want to be remote, but sometimes you can't, which is kind of the case with the Lovell. Of course, when they built it, it was fairly remote in the middle of Cheshire, but now 
Cheshire is a popular area. There's lots of people who live there now. So you, you get a lot more RFI than you used to. Plus, now everybody has cell phones. Those are, you know, back in the 50s, you didn't really have microwaves. Now everybody has microwaves. And they're convenient. So, I mean, there's a microwave at the observatory. It's in a Faraday cage, but, you know, there's leakage. So it's, it's a trade-off between... Well, we, we could put the, we, we could make this observatory extraordinarily remote and, and give nobody any convenience, but nobody would want to work there. Mm. People want the convenience of getting to work easily and they want the convenience of being able to heat their lunch up quickly. I mean, uh, there are signs all around Jodrell Bank saying that the Lovell telescope is powerful enough to pick up a mobile phone signal on Mars. So you can probably never get remote enough to. Oh, certainly not. Completely. I mean, yeah, there's there's not really anything you can do. I mean, especially since you, you can have people turn off their phones around the level, but the level isn't that far away from the road. It's not that far, especially not that far away from the train. And so if somebody has a mobile phone in their pocket driving by or on the train, the level's going to see that. And there's, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. It's just the fact that it's the time we live in. Everybody has mobile phones. Everybody has devices that are on and transmitting all the time. What is the actual symptom of this sort of radio frequency interference, as well as creating possible signals which aren't real? Does it drown out signals which you want to see? And how do you work to mitigate it, even if you can't stop it completely? Yeah, well, it's difficult. So it does definitely drown out signals. So your astronomical signal is very weak. And I, especially with pulsars, you normally have to add a bunch of data together to see your signal. I mean, yes, if, if there's some strong interference with a tiny signal buried in it, and then a tiny signal present elsewhere in clean data, and you add them all together, eventually maybe you can see your signal above that RFI. Or you can just ignore the data where there's RFI. But in the case of the level, there tends to be quite a bit. So, I mean, if, if you start throwing out your data that's just affected by interference, have no data. So you, you do have to clean it, and it's it's difficult, but the nice thing is, especially with pulsars, we, we look at wide bandwidths. It helps us and it harms us. So the, the, the more bandwidth you look at, the more signal you get. So you're increasing your sensitivity. But also, the actual astronomically protected band is quite small. So if you look at a wide bandwidth, you're looking at bands where people are allowed to transmit. They're things that transmit on dedicated frequencies. Mm, like radios and stuff. Radios, cell phones, satellites, And there radar. are dedicated safe zones where no one's allowed to transmit, and that's for astronomy, right? Yes, so it's 1400 to 1428 megahertz, I believe, is the protected band. Mm. It is illegal to transmit in that band. It's completely illegal to transmit knowingly in that band. Obviously, if 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 you have a uh, some equipment that's malfunctioning, you're not you know, no nobody's going to arrest you for that. I mean, you need to fix it. But if you were knowingly transmitting within the the protected band, yes, that's illegal. I mean, at the Green Bank Telescope, don't they have a guy who drives around with a a detector? Yeah, he has a so he has a van with with a little dish on top, and he goes around and he attempts to pinpoint the location of these signals. So once he finds the general area. He gets out and he has a handheld dish that he then goes and walks around. And I mean, it's anything from a a a, a short in in a, in in a heating pad that somebody had for their dog, uh, to old refrigerators, motors in old refrigerators, to um, vibrating power lines. Because I mean, sparks generate radio mm. frequencies. Like a spark plug in a in a car engine will generate radio frequencies. Actually, the, the GBT, uh, when, when it first started, has uh, took some data and has a great plot. It pointed towards the road, 
and the GBT is set very far back from the from the road for the reason I'm about to to say. Um, the spark plug spark plugs firing in a car that's driving by on the road, like very clearly in in data from the GBT. So yeah, there was a some power lines and there was some some connection of some sort, and it it was it was two things rubbing against each other, just vibrating, and it was generating a very small spark and. And the GBT could could see this as interference. It was miles away. Mm. So they had to get the power company to come out and fix it. (laughs) So obviously the GBT has the advantage of being incredibly remote and incredibly well policed in a way. Does it get a lot harder in an area like Cheshire with uh, the level telescope and a, a town very close by? Or are people more aware? Is the local council more accommodating to helping make the situation not get any worse or is it is it getting worse well certainly with the the gbt i mean it's great because you're 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 in the sanctioned radio quiet zone right government sanctioned something like thirteen thousand square miles i mean it's enormous so you you can't put anything new in there any new transmitters in there it's radio quiet It's, it's quite nice so people know ahead of time if they move in there, they, they know what they're getting themselves into. They know they're not allowed to have microwaves. They know if they have a cell phone, it won't work. With Cheshire, there's, there's no quiet zone. I mean, it's, it's a smaller country. I mean, if you put 13,000 13, square miles around the, the, the level, it would encompass Manchester. And you can't have a big city that's radio quiet. It just doesn't make any sense. Certainly, it's more of a problem. And yes, you know, there's, there's around level, there's Goose Tree, which is, it's, it's not a city like Manchester, but it's a town. You have a lot of people living there. I mean, there's, there's sort of a town, air quotes, around Greenback, but it's tiny. There's, there's so few people there. It doesn't make too much of a difference. And, you know, with, with Goose Tree, we, we do notice more RFI in the direction of Goose Tree, but it, it's not terrible. Since there's no sort of, zone designated to to keep any area around the level safe it's open to increased interference over time i mean if if any building happens more people are moving in i mean i you know i i don't know if there's any restriction on building more say mobile phone towers which would be terrible if if you put another town around the level x people with x cell phones the the rfi is just going to get worse mm. So you have to you have to guard very carefully against future development if you can, but it's not yes. always possible. It is not always possible, right? Because I mean, every place is getting more crowded, so you you can't really stop development, but what you you can at least guide it so that it mitigates the 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 RFI that's added, and you can make people more aware. There was a funny example recently. Well, it wasn't very funny, but because the situation's hopefully been resolved. It's a little bit more funny to do with a smartphone app, which at the time of recording this has only just come out called Pokemon Go. So how could you tell us a little bit about that story? Yes. So uh, current, well, currently all the telescopes, the three telescopes on the site are down. So there's no, you can use your, your mobile phone on the site, but you shouldn't. So one of the people who work there downloaded the Pokemon Go app and walked around the, the site with the app on, and they found four Pokestops and a gym, and the gym was on the Lovell Telescope. And for anyone who's not familiar with what that actually means, it basically means that anyone playing this game will be very uh, attracted to coming to the telescope with the app in order to, to play the game. 
And that would have been a disaster. Yeah, it absolutely would have been. Um, right after this this person found out, she she contacted Nintendo and she she told a bunch of people to to try to get the Pokestops taken down and the gym removed. And since then, they they have at least the the I know the gym has been removed. I'm not entirely sure if the Pokestops have been. I assume they have. I assume if they took the gym down, they took the Pokestops away. But one one of the problems is that I guess these sites were assigned based on popularity of places in a previous game called Ingress. Mm. So that means that for a long time, a lot of people have been walking around the Lovell Telescope with their phones on playing this game. You don't necessarily know how many other games might do the same sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, obviously Ingress was using... GPS data for location, which means that the, these mobile phones were transmitting quite heavily. You you try to impress upon people when they're on the site how important it is to keep it quiet, but they don't always necessarily realize. They say, "Oh, I'll just take my phone." I know, you know, it's this one phone's not going to be a big issue, but of course it will. Obviously, we could see that phone if it were on Mars. Plus, if one person has that thought, a lot of people are going to think, "Well, it's just my cell phone. It's not that big of a deal." And obviously, a lot of people were doing this if these became sites in Pokemon Go. Hmm. I mean, especially if the level became, <laughs> became a gym. People must have been standing right in front of this telescope, which is pretty much always observing, even when people are around it. I mean, a, a lot of local people do understand. Um, but, of course, visitors come from everywhere, so they're not all locals. Hmm. I know I've talked to people from Goose Tree before who, who are very aware um, of the RFI situation, then they, they do their best to keep it at a minimum. But it must be hard to actually tell people where they live that you don't want them to use their phones and their microwaves. It must be, it's a balance, I guess, which is difficult in this situation. Like I said, it's someplace like Greenbank, people know ahead of time. When, when they move into that area, they know that they're giving up cell phones and microwaves and things like that. And, and you end up with, people who move in there who who want that kind of lifestyle they they don't want to be bothered with a with a mobile phone but in cheshire you can't and and i mean especially since it's such a such a posh area you know you get a lot of people wanting to move in yeah and 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 you can't tell people well you're going to have to live like it's you know 100 years ago so you're also a an SKA engineer, you mentioned at the beginning. I guess the lesson we've learned there is to build it in the middle of a desert. Yes, that is very, very smart. And there there, there are a few of those on the planet, which is quite useful. So the, the two sites where this telescope is going to be built is in uh, Western Australia and South Africa. So it's the, I don't know if the Western Australia desert has a name other than the outback. Um, but the site in South Africa is the Karoo Desert. So those are both very remote, and there's very few people around them. I mean, at least with Western Australia, the, the population's very low. And with South Africa, there's no one really around the Karoo, and it's not as built up as, say, Australia. So there's less... You know, less mobile towers around. Could you give us an overview of what you uh, what you work on for the SKA as an SKA engineer? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, well, engineer is sort of a. I guess it's the correct term, but it's what I do is a bit broader than that. I mean, I, I am a scientist, but I, I I have a lot of experience with hardware. So 
what we need to do is to design a Pulsar search that can work on the SKA within the requirements and within the monetary and the power budget. Our team's work is designing all the little pieces that make up a Pulsar search, because there, there are quite a few steps involved. And we, we need to make sure that we can do all these steps in a set amount of time, and that we can fit all these steps on the hardware we've decided we can we can use given our power budget. So there are a, a few of, of the team members are doing coding for GPUs, a few are doing coding on FPGAs. What I do mostly is algorithm development. So how do we make a better algorithm to do something faster or use less power or fit on an FPGA specifically or fit on a GPU? Because those hard, those pieces of hardware have different architecture. And the, um, the SKA has not been built yet. And I'm guessing that not all of the hardware has even been ordered. So are you working based on sort of future specifications for what will be available when it finally gets built? Do you take that into account? Things like Moore's Law and the power of computers going up over time. If the SKA is not going to be built for another 10 years, let's say, the computers you're working on now will be really old compared to the ones that you'll be. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we're, we're completely relying on, on that fact, on, on Moore's Law pretty much. We, we physically can't do what we need to do today. And so we've we've designed a system where our design is fairly mature. So for this stage, we don't have to build anything. We just have to come up with a design that we can prove meets the requirements. But we've we're we're, we're doing a good job with our design. We're, you know, fairly far ahead of schedule. So we have an actual implementation that we're using to prototype which it's it's a great way to to get results because you you can run simulations on your bits and pieces and get results and prove you meet the requirements that way but with our actual prototype it's much better but what we do is we we get our numbers for our prototype and then we say okay in 10 years we've been talking to the people who make CPUs we've been talking to the people who make GPUs we've been talking to the people who make FPGAs they've told us that that's going to be four times faster in the future and we're four times slower currently so in 10 years we will meet the requirements and I mean that's all you can do that's all you really need to do because that's how these things work I mean there's there's always risk and you mitigate that risk I say making prototypes but yes, I mean, we're absolutely relying on these companies telling us the truth. You know, new technology that's just so much faster. So in what ways are you able to test these prototypes out? Are there uh, prototype telescopes that have been built that you're searching for pulsars with? Or are you simulating pulsars and just searching for them? How are you doing your tests? So up until now, we've been simulating data and running it through bits and pieces, whether those be on a CPU or a GPU or an FPGA. What we've just set up is our first actual prototype. So, I mean, we've had prototype hardware in the past, but we now have an entire prototype system, kind of an end-to-end system, because we, we were doing module tests before, like we'll test this piece, then we'll test this piece, then we'll test this piece. So our, our current, our newest prototype is an entire pipeline, and we've just installed that on Meerkat. Which is the... That's the, this new telescope in South Africa. So it's, it's in the Karoo. Uh, it's a precursor to the SKA. Pathfinder precursor? Pathfinder, I think. Pathfinder. I can never remember the distinction unless I think about it. So that's just actually had its first array release two days ago. 
but we so we we had one of our team members go down there and we shipped this machine down and it's it's all it's it's connected it's not um, set up yet so hopefully very soon we'll get that online we'll we'll be able to get actual pulsar data i mean s- simulated data works fairly well but it's more testing the prototype in a, in a streaming environment versus reading in a file. So will you be looking for new pulsars, or will you be looking at old pulsars with this new telescope? Yeah, so for, for this, we'll just be testing the prototype, so we'll just be looking at known pulsars. We'll mm. probably start with a bright pulsar like Vela, which is insanely bright, uh, make sure we can detect it, make sure there's nothing wrong, that the detection looks fine, and then go to, to weaker and weaker known pulsars. But there's... We're, we're not going to be doing any science with this. It's just the prototype for purposes of proving we meet the requirements. But one of SKA's goals will be to look for new pulsars. Absolutely. Would you be able to say why we want to find more? We've seen lots of them already. Why do we want to find as many pulsars as we can? Oh, there's numerous reasons. So we know of about 2,500 pulsars. Uh, the SKA should find about fifteen to 25,000 or bring the total up to that at least. So that's quite useful because we'd like to know kind of what is out there. We, we, we need a, a broader population of pulsars. Maybe the ones we've seen are fairly local around us in the galaxy and they're, they're, they, they only probe a certain corner of a, of a parameter space. We need a, a galactic consensus of, of all the pulsars. And we, we really, really want to find uh, a pulsar black hole binary. It's kind of the, the holy grail of pulsars right now. It's That's the immediate that Nobel Prize, isn't it? Pretty much. And why is it that people are interested in finding that? I mean, that's uh, the, the tests of gravity you could do with that system are, are immense. I mean, it's pulsars are the most extreme matter in the universe. Black holes are you know, extreme objects. I wouldn't call them matter because we don't really know. Understand. Yeah, we don't even know if there's really matter inside of them. Maybe it collapses down to nothing. But, so you have two of the most extreme things in the universe in in an extreme environment, tests that you can do nowhere else. I mean, you can't do them on Earth, certainly. You should destroy the Earth trying to do any sort of test like that. But it's, you know, you couldn't even build anything like a neutron star. So extremely high energy physics and tests of different gravitational wave detections. Because, yeah, I mean, one of the things we need to do in just fundamental physics is find out how gravity fits with everything else. Because we we can figure out how all the other forces fit together, and then there's gravity. And, you know, you have the electromagnetic force, the strong force, the weak force. We, We know how those go together, but we can't figure out how gravity fits in with them. So that would very much help figuring out how gravity works with all those other forces. It's very exciting stuff. And you've been giving a few talks about, about your work recently. And you're giving a, a public lecture for the Manchester Astronomical Society at some point in the future. Is that right? Yes. I gave a talk at this event called Pint of Science a few months ago now. It's a worldwide event held in a number of cities in different countries. I obviously was in, gave a talk in Manchester on the SKA. And after that, I was contacted by somebody from the Manchester Astronomical Society asking me if I could give a a talk for them in January, I believe? Sometime in early January. 2017. Yes, 2017. And that will be a a public lecture? Yes, it'll be a public lecture. 
an hour long, I believe it is. The so the talk I gave for Pine of Science was thirty minutes. So this will be this will be more of a lecture than a talk. So an, an hour long. I I'll be talking about something SK related. I, I I know that I was asked to give this talk because of the Pine of Science talk because when I was contacted about this upcoming Manchester Astronomical Society talk, they, they used language that I'd used in my abstract for the Pint of Science talk. <laughs> so I, I, I know they obviously, they either saw the, saw my abstract somewhere or somebody attended the, the, my talk. And so yeah, I'll, I'll be talking about for, from my Pint of Science talk, the, the talk was more geared towards the challenges of trying to build the world's biggest telescope. So my, Manchester Astronomical Society talk will be very similar, kind of the challenges involved and how we've overcome them. Okay, and so we will maybe give you an interview about that, a yeah. separate interview about that in the future, and when we find out more about the lecture, we will uh, put it on the Jogcast website. So thank you very much, Jess. Yes. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Charlie. Now Max and Luke interview Professor Tetsuo Hatsuda about quarks and neutron stars. Hello, I'm joined by Professor Tetsuo Hatsuda from the Riken Institute in Japan. It's one of the largest research institutes over there, and they do all sorts of interdisciplinary research from things like fish to graphene to quantum chromodynamics. We've just listened to a really interesting talk from quarks to neutron stars. So hello to Professor Tetsuo Hatsuda. Hello, nice to see you. Hi, and I'm joined by Luke, who's taken a lot of interest in this talk. Hello. <laughs> and we've got some, some questions for you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if you wanted to start off and just tell us a little bit about your interest in quarks and neutron stars. I mean, the quarks are the elementary particles, which are the, the basic building blocks of matter, and then our bodies are made of quarks. So how the quarks uh, interact with each other, and then how our body is made of quarks is my interest. And then, of course, we can discuss that problem uh, theoretically and also experimentally, but also... In neutron stars, inside the neutron stars, I mean, the quarks get together and then form a exotic, very interesting state of matter. It may happen deep inside the neutron star. Therefore, that is also my interest. And then uh, eventually that kind of thing could be studied from the observation in astrophysics. So that excites me very much. So could you possibly give the listeners a brief on the structure of the neutron star okay. and the interesting physics going on. Yeah, so neutron star is a very interesting object that the radius is about 10 kilometer, but the mass is about the mass of the, the sun. So just imagine that if you compress the sun into the radius of the 10 kilometer, that is a neutron star. So it's a very dense object, but still it's a very spherical. And then inside you have a liquid. It's called a neutron liquid. And then uh, the outer side of the neutron star, it is solid. So you have a solid container, and inside you have a neutron liquid. And it's rotating very fast. Therefore, it's a very interesting astronomical object. There are so many neutron stars discovered inside our galaxy, so it's a very interesting object to be studied. So a lot of your research, Professor, is entered around quantum chromodynamics, mm -hmm. the study of yeah. um, strongly interacting yes, particles. Yes, yes. So how does quantum chromodynamics link... Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. to the structure of okay. a neutron star. Yeah, so the quantum chromodynamics is the, the theory for uh, quarks. And then, as I told you, that the I mean, our body is made of quarks, but in the neutron stars, everything is compressed. Therefore, eventually, and the outer side is an ordinary matter, but the inside you have a very compressed matter of quarks. And then you may have some new 
type of matter which we don't see in the daily life. And that kind of exotic matter is very interesting to me uh, to study. So we know about the, that there are these interesting states of matter that happen inside mm. neutron stars. Mm. Is there any way of measuring that observationally? Mm. Or yeah. You have to rely on yeah. theory. Yeah. In astrophysics, uh, what you can measure is, say, the mass, the weight of the neutron star, or the radius of the neutron star, or the outer magnetic field of the neutron star. All those kind of things can be, in principle, measured. And therefore, from these uh, observations, uh, you have to somehow try to understand the internal structure. That's a very difficult, I mean, thing to do. But still, by combining the observation and the calculation based on quantum chromodynamics, you may be able to eventually have some contact of the quarks with uh, the internal structure of the neutron star. So that's the yeah, relation. So you said that the neutron star, as a loose model, is composed of this liquid, and then on the outsides you mm. have this solid. Yes. Is there anything interesting going on on the inside, particularly with respect to the liquid? Of the neutron star. Ah, yeah. So, as far as liquids are concerned, if you have a liquid, neutron liquid, and then uh, it's a quantum liquid, and then usually it becomes a superfluid. So it's not only just a liquid, but it's a quantum superfluid. And if you have a superfluid inside neutron star, and then normally the neutron star is rotating, in that case you have vortices inside the neutron stars, and that vortices have some interesting structure. They have a typically a micro size. 10 to the minus 13 or minus 12 centimeter size, but the number of vortices are very large inside the neutron stars, and then they may have some collective effect, like glitch of the neutron star, which is a phenomena that the spinning neutron star becomes suddenly spin up and then coming down. That kind of thing is measured in astrophysics, and that kind of thing is related to the internal structure and maybe related to this vortices dynamics. So with respect to the interesting stuff that's happening inside the inner core, how close can we get to mm. recreating those conditions in a laboratory? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> and then actually uh, there are lots of activities of having heavy ion collisions. And then uh, especially the relatively low energy heavy ion collisions, you collide two heavy nuclei. And then in the intermediate state of the collision, you may have some compressed matter. And then that density becomes uh, comparable to the, the density of the neutron star, I mean, internal state of the neutron star. Therefore, you may be able to see some experimental evidence of this compressed matter properties from this low-energy heavy ion collisions. And then there are several laboratories trying to uh, do this kind of experiment in the future, in Japan and also in Germany too. You can start to begin to probe that regime in laboratories, mm -hmm. but would you say that most of the information we have on these states of matter comes from astrophysical observation? Yeah, so far, yes. Yeah. yes, yes. So what were the kind of turning moments in the history of understanding neutron stars? A turning moment? You yeah, mean, like uh, any kind of big important discoveries that we've made over the years. Ah, okay. So one important discovery one would expect is the neutron star collision. And then we have already a black hole merger and the gravitational wave emitted from the black hole merger. And then maybe in a few years, we may have a similar gravitational wave emission from the neutron star merger. And by detecting this signal, you may be able to extract the radius and then eventually some density of the neutron star inside and so on and so forth. So uh, that is, would be one of the most biggest event in this subject, I think, in a few years. I hope it will happen in a few years. And then people expect that this will happen in a few years. So just to recap, we've gone through this neutron star and all the different physics, crazy physics going on inside, mm. superfluid neutrons, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the possibility of this exotic matter at the middle. 
Could you possibly explain to us what sort of physics and what's happening between the two regimes? So what's going on between the neutrons mm. and uh-huh. this sort of exotic okay. quark matter? So there are several stages, and then one stage is that the first outer side you have solid of the nucleus, nuclear solid. And then, and because inside the neutron star, the pressure becomes larger and larger if you go inside. And then the, because of the large pressure, the, the matter starts to melt. And then eventually, a nuclear melt, and then it becomes the neutron liquid. And then if you uh, have a larger pressure uh, further inside a neutron star, then even the neutron start to melt into quarks. And then eventually at the center of the neutron star, you may have some quark matter, which is where quarks are floating around. Usually the quarks are confined inside the neutrons or protons, but deep inside the neutron star, quarks may be freed. That is called the deconfinement of quarks, and that may happen. And so there are several different stages from outer side to the inner side, and then those kind of things may happen. One thing that you mentioned during the talk that I thought was quite a nice touching point that people might relate to is that there is some relationship between the physics that you're looking at inside mm-hmm. these neutron stars and what the Nobel Prize that was mm-hmm. won this year. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about the yeah. crossover between those fields? Okay, so Nobel Prize this year is originally from this, as, as far as I remember, 73 paper by Kostaritz and Saulis, and then they have talked about the uh, topological object called the, the so-called vortex, and then some matter may have some phase change from the one phase to the other phase because of the dynamics of the vortices. And this is called a topological phase transition. And then similar kind of vortices would appear, and probably it should appear inside the neutron stars because neutron star, as I said, internal structure of the neutron star, you have a neutron liquid and it's superfluid. Therefore, you have lots of vortices. So inside the neutron star, there are lots of vortices exist. And then the interaction between vortices may also give you some sort of the phase change from one phase to the other. That kind of thing may happen. So that is the connection. And so topology is a key word which connects this year's Nobel Prize and uh, neutron star vortices. Yeah, that's really interesting. One thing that I find quite interesting is that this thing that you're speaking about regarding the gravitational waves emitted from the black hole merger. Just for the benefit of the people who don't know, how much weaker or stronger would gravitational waves emitted from a neutron star collision be in comparison to black hole? So it depends on the mass yeah. of the uh, of the object. And then the gravitational wave observed the last year from advanced LIGO detector is that the, it's a rather heavy black hole, something like 30 times the solar mass. So because it was heavy, you have a large amplitude of the gravitational wave from the very far from us. And the neutron star mass is typically one to two uh, solar mass. Mm. So that typically, if they are in the same distance, essentially the mass determines the amplitude of the gravitational wave. Therefore, you cannot have a very strong gravitational wave from the neutron star merger because neutron star mass is limited mm. up to two something. But on the other hand, the neutron star merger has very interesting signal because neutron star has a structure, so depending on the size of the neutron star, the gravitational wave pattern is different. Therefore, by measuring the gravitational wave pattern from neutron star merger, you may be able to extract or constrain the size of the neutron star. And eventually, that is related to the internal structure of the neutron star. So that kind of connection is uh, very interesting in the case of the neutron star merger. So what questions do you hope to answer when you get these observations? So firstly, I should ask, isn't a device like LIGO Mm -hmm. sensitive enough to pick up these events? Yes. And also, what will you 
hope to learn from. Yeah, there are three detectors. One is advanced LIGO, and then other is the advanced VAGO, and then the third one is the Kagura in Japan. And then they will have some full operation in few years. And then if they start to measure this gravitational wave, then current estimate is that within few years, at least you can find one or two gravitational wave from neutron star merger. So they have a good sensitivity. So their estimate is correct, then uh, they will be able to find some uh, neutron star merger signal not far away from now. So Okay, so yes. that's something to look out for in the next yeah. few years. Yeah, yeah, yes. Do you think there's anything more interesting or weird huh? or wacky that could be at the centre of a neutron star? So Even more yeah. exotic. Yeah. <laughs> mm. The very exotic thing is this dark matter. Mm. Uh, if you have a lot of dark matter, and then this will be accumulated because of the large gravity of the neutron star. And then for a long time, if you accumulate all this dark matter inside the neutron star, the neutron star mass becomes heavier and heavier. And at some certain point, it goes over to the critical point and then goes to the black hole. So accumulation mm. of the dark matter into the center of the neutron star may drive the transition from the neutron star to the black hole. That kind of thing has been uh, discussed by several people. So that is, uh, I think, one of the most exotic, yes. uh, interesting thing. Uh, yeah, connection between dark matter and then neutron star. So it's a far-reaching field then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing I was going to ask about that you didn't really get time to talk about during mm. the talk we saw mm. was mm. about hyperons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So inside a neutron star, you have mm. more exotic types of quark, mm-hmm. right? Other yes. than just the usual up-down yeah. types. So could you tell us a little bit about that, why that happens, and maybe mm. why it's interesting? Yeah, yeah. So if, again, if you go to the, the central part of the neutron star, then not only uh, up and down quarks, but you have another quark called the strange quark, which may appear. Because if you have only up and down, then the kinetic energy of these up and down quarks becomes larger and larger as you increase the density of the system. Then it is easier or better to convert this U and D quark, up and down quarks, to strange quark. That makes this full kinetic energy smaller. Therefore, it's energetically favorable to have a strange quark instead of just having an up and down quark. But once you have strange quark, then total energy becomes smaller. Therefore, equation of state, which controls the state of the matter, becomes soft. And then neutron star can be easily compressed. And then the maximum mass of the neutron star becomes smaller than the twice the mass of the sun. That contradicts with the observation which uh, we have now. Therefore, there is a puzzle. It's called a hyperon puzzle. Theoretically, it's better to have strange quark inside neutron star. But once you have strange quark inside neutron star, then it has some contradiction with the observation. Therefore, something is wrong. And then that is uh, the open question, and it's um, one of the most interesting unsolved question in this community right mm-hmm. now. So you mentioned there the equation of state that was inside, and the, it becomes softer. Yes. Right? So yes. by that, we're talking about the kind of mass-radius relationship that you were talking yes. about during the talk, where yes. as you pile on more mass to the neutron yes. star, yes. you can reach a sort of critical radius. Could you explain a little bit about uh, uh-huh. that? If the equation of state is soft then you can easily compress. And therefore, the typically the radius becomes smaller. On the other hand, if the equation of state is hard, then you cannot easily compress. The radius is typically large. And also, if the equation of state is soft, then if you put uh, more mass, and then eventually it collapses into the black hole very fast. 
So the maximum mass of the neutron star becomes smaller for soft equation of state and then larger for the stiff equation of state. So radius is smaller and the maximum mass is smaller for soft equation of state. Radius is larger, maximum mass is larger for stiff equation of state. Mm -hmm. So there is such kind of difference. And then theoretically, we don't know yet whether equation of state is really soft or hard. But at least we have to explain two solar mass observation. And then you need to have some certain stiffness. Two soft equation of state can be ruled out by the observation already. So, so one of the concepts that you've been through with us is the idea of these vortices yes. perpetuating through the superfluid. Yes. Okay. Now, this might be a little bit harder to explain easily, but what happens to those vortices when they go into this proposed quark superfluid? Yeah. What sort of physics goes on there yeah. if we've got these objects, these vortices yeah. going yeah. around in our superfluid, but yeah. then they must interact with the quarks as yeah. well? Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. So, so what happens there? Can yes. you explain this to Yeah, us? yeah. So if you have only neutrons superfluid, then you have, suppose you have single vo uh, vortex, and then if it enters into the quark phase, theoretically the quark phase is also superfluid, which we can show. Therefore, the single vortex in neutron superfluid becomes three vortices in quark superfluid. So single vortex becomes split into the three vortices inside quark superfluid. So that kind of a strange structure, the bifurcation of a single vortex mm. into the three mm. would happen at the interface between the neutron superfluid and quark superfluid. And that kind of thing may happen inside the neutron star too. So the sort of if I understand correctly, that's because if you've got a vortex in mm. a collection of neutrons, mm -hmm. Mm. when those neutrons are split into their constituent quarks, yes. there are three quarks making yes. up the neutron, yes. right? So it yeah. effectively splits the vortex three yes. ways. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes okay. essentially that, that is a yeah. right picture. Yes. So there must be some really interesting dynamics going on amongst those quarks. Then, yeah, yeah. For there to be, yeah. for every neutron going through that phase transition, if yeah. there's three then, different vortices coming out, that must be... That's right, yes. yes. I wouldn't want to simulate that. It's going to get messy. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of simulations, it was mentioned that your facility has some of yeah. the most advanced high-performance computing yeah, yeah. tech in the world. What kind of yes. simulations are you running there? And uh -huh. So we have in Riken so-called a K computer, and K means the 10 petaflops in Japanese. So 10 petaflops machine in Riken. So we use that machine to calculate the nucleon-nucleon or nucleon-hyperon interactions by using so-called lattice QCT simulations. And then it is a very tough calculation. And then to really get one result, we spent almost two years. It's essentially the Monte Carlo integration, but you have so many degrees of freedom. Therefore, this kind of integration is very difficult. And then by using this supercomputer, we took two years to get some result. And then now uh, we are still making some further calculation to increase statistics and so on and so forth. And uh, this is all related to that kind of quark confinement issue that we were talking about. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, quark confinement and also how this confined quarks interaction between the protons and neutrons in terms of the quark degrees of freedom. So quarks are, are confined inside neutrons and protons. But the next question is how the neutrons and protons, which has quarks inside, interact with each other. That is another question, which is even more complicated question. And then 
That takes time. But there's a, there's a million dollars on the line if you get it right. Mm. So. Well, yeah, but it's still a numerical calculation. Uh, and then I think mathematicians will not accept that it is a proof. But uh, it's not okay. a mathematical proof. It's yeah. plausible, I mean. So thing. just to fill the listeners in, this was part of the Clay Institute set of mathematical challenges where each one of them, I think there are seven. Uh, seven problems. Yeah, and there's a bounty of a million dollars available if you can provide a full worked mathematical solution. Yes. But I'm guessing they only want analytical solutions. Rather analytical than, solutions, yeah. right. not so, numerical, I think. So Yang Mills Mass Gap. Yang Mills Mass Gap is the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Go and get that if you want a million dollars. Get to work, listeners. Answers <laughs> on a postcard, please. Yeah. It's a fancy way. Yang Mills Mass Gap is a fancy way to, say, confinement of cocks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just, so I can sort of get in my head the scale. What is a petaflop? What is oh. that? Petaflop of, of, of is, uh, so when you do calculations, you add or subtract on those kinds of the basic operations. One petaflop means 10 to the, 10 to the 15 operations per second. Right, okay. That is a petaflop. So Very 10 petaflops means 10 to the 16 operations, plus or minus or something like that per second. So it's a very fast. Wow. Uh, so yeah. doing that continuously for two years is an awful lot of yeah, n- Yeah, not continuously two years, but I mean, because mm-hmm. there are other people using this computer sure, too, yeah. so we have to split, but still it took two years for us to. So Riken seems like a really interesting place. Mm-hmm. Um, what other kind of work mm-hmm. are you mm-hmm. doing over there? I'm heading the interdisciplinary theoretical science research group that contains physics, chemistry, and then biology. And then they are all theorists. So uh, we are getting together once a week on Friday, and then all physicists, chemists, and the biologists, they are all theorists. But we have some lunch together, and then we discuss the recent problems and so on and so forth. And then during these discussions, sometimes biologists propose some interesting problem to physicists, and then physicists are interested in, and they started to solve this problem in a mathematical way or in some other way. So there are several Already five or six collaborations started between physicists, chemists, and then biologists. And then I'm involved in one of them, and that is a fish retina problem. And then in fish retina, there is a very nice pattern of the photoreceptor cells. Especially this zebrafish, uh, medaka fish, they have some uh, very interesting, beautiful pattern. And how these patterns are formed has been unsolved problem since 19th century, because they knew it from 19th century, but they couldn't solve it. Why they have that kind of pattern? And then somehow we can map that problem to the statistical spin model, which is usually used in physics, and then eventually we could solve that problem uh, recently. So that kind of discussion drives a very interesting uh, problem solving. Yeah, that's brilliant. What a great way of doing science. Yeah, 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 that's right. Nice. So have you got any other interesting projects that you might be producing results from in the near future? Oh, in this uh, collaboration, inter- interdisciplinary collaboration? Or in any collaboration. Just an- anything that's coming f- up from out of your office in the, oh, the next coming months? Yeah, yeah. In, from the physics point of view, we would like to pursue further this uh, calculation of this uh, hyperon-nucleon interaction, or hyperon-hyperon interaction, which is very important for the neutron star structure by using the lattice QCD simulations. There is also a very interesting interaction between the condensed matter physicist and then particle and the nuclear physicist because some common notion can explain both the particle physics problem and the condensed matter physics problem. And that kind of thing often happens. So we are going to that direction too. And then my own interest right now is still biophysics <laughs> <laughs> a problem other than this QCD stuff. And then 
There are many interesting problems how the complex network in biology can be analyzed in a mathematical way that can be done together with the mathematical biologist, and that is very interesting. To Brilliant. Yes, yes. Great. Professor Tetsuo Hatsuda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to be here. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for that, Max and Luke. And now we move on to the part of the show about things which we can't fit in anywhere else the odds and ends. Well, yesterday was the day that ExoMars's little probe Schiaparelli was meant to land on Mars, and as far as I know, we haven't yet received a signal from it. I hope I'm saying Schiaparelli correctly. I think that's how they say it in the Martian movie.、Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I seem to remember that's how it was pronounced. I, I wouldn't know. I've not seen the Martian. How have you not seen the Martian? Charlie, doing a PhD.、I, yeah. Have you read the book? No. Nope. No, oh, it's no, such、I'm, a good book. I've got a long list of books to read, and it is on there. In fact, I think we've had this exact discussion on the Jogcast before, James. <laughs> so apparently, the Martian is—you know that scene of Apollo thirteen with the table, and they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole.、Mm. So the whole of the Martian is like that one scene from Apollo thirteen. You might notice that I've been very quiet, and that's because I haven't seen Apollo thirteen either. Oh, sacrilege! This is outrageous.、Um, I don't understand. We need to pause this show so Charlie can go watch a couple of movies. Yeah, we're gonna have a film night. <laughs> well, I mean, Fiona, Jocko's Fiona does film nights. Yeah. So maybe we can get us put two of those on the list. Yeah. Maybe、Fiona、one will win, and I'll、uh, <laughs> have something to.、Uh, well, I have one less regret in my life. <laughs> Well, I, I re-saw、um, Apollo thirteen recently, and it's such a great movie. But、um, I'm very excited about any missions in space, and it's kind of sad that Schiaparelli hasn't yet. Well, we haven't gotten a signal back from Schiaparelli. But as far as I understand, the ExoMars mission is relatively successful in that the Trace Gas Orbiter, the TGO, has entered orbit around Mars. And if I understand correctly, the TGO is there specifically to try and detect. Um, signs of life. I think they're looking for methane, and you you actually need to have something actively making methane. Otherwise, the UV rays from the sun will, or, and I suppose the universe,、um, will actually break up all the methane molecules. So this is the probe that's been put into orbit around Mars. Yes, and that is successful, and it's separately launched Schiaparelli, which is a lander. I think Schiaparelli and the TGO were launched together, and then they separated. And、mm. one went into orbit. TGO went into orbit. Schiaparelli was supposed to land. And、um, Max, you were telling us earlier, was the parachutes did deploy? But yeah, I think the press release that they put out this morning, as of recording,、uh, was that the the parachutes and the heat shields deployed correctly as it was falling. So they have got a signal as the lander was,、uh, you know, entering the atmosphere. But the thrusters stopped engaging sooner than they should have. Um, and they implied that the landing was not a soft landing as planned. So、uh, that, I love the way NASA are trying to spin it. It's like it's really positive. You know, they got all this really useful engineering data about their spaceship crashing and burning. Sounds ominous.、Yeah. I wouldn't like to have a unsoft landing on Mars. No,、uh, unsoft landing anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> have they said hard landing, or have they said they haven't? They've just they've just implied that it was not a soft landing. Because I mean, even hard sounds like a bit of an understatement to me.、Yeah. They crashed. <laughs>、yeah. Crash landing,、yeah. catastrophic landing. Um, um, but what were the、uh, base aims of the Schiaparelli? So I mean, to be fair, Schiaparelli's. Actual job was a test of whether we knew, or whether ESA and、um, the Russian Space Agency.、Um, it's a test to see if they know how to land successfully on Mars. So essentially, as of yet, we don't know if that test has passed. 
Um, as far as I know, Schiaparelli doesn't have solar panels or anything, so its power was only going to be from remaining battery power anyway. So we can't think on the bright side in terms of Rosetta and the probe that landed on the comet, oh. landing on the comet, losing sunlight and losing power, but eventually moving back into the sun, mm. and so it recharged itself. Yeah, this is just no, battery powered. It's just battery yeah. powered. A thing I did think that was really cool about ExoMars is that it is, as I mentioned, a joint mission mm. by the ESA, the European Space Agency, and the Russian Space Agency. And um, if the internet is correct, I got this information from the internet, um, initially ExoMars was funded by ESA and NASA, but NASA actually pulled out due to budgeting concerns. So the Russian Space Agency jumped in, so that, that was kind of neat. That was really cool. Yeah, it's nice to see that sort of cooperation. Yeah. One thing that comes from cooperation though is like the sharing of knowledge and absolutely we've been landing things on mars for quite a while now curiosity and that sort of thing so yeah. does anyone know why this has gone slightly wrong we've landed stuff successfully there before what's different about this their answer is that they're decoding the information so i think we're going to have to wait for mm. the uh, the rest of the signal that that was transmitted from ship early as it fell until they've figured out what that's saying, we're not going to know what's gone wrong. Yeah, I but think it, they were testing new technology, mm, though. Yeah. Um, it's like the parachute liquid propulsion braking system. Mm. Um, oh, so it's a hybrid system. Well, it's the braking system that seems to have failed, right. according to the press release. But that's me reading into their little implications. We don't actually know anything. We don't know yet. And yet. for listeners' benefit, this is time of recording is the 20th of October. Mm. And so that's one day after the... Yeah. So what will happen to... So this is a test for, I think, a 2020 mission. Um, how does this impact the 2020 mission? Will they still go ahead, you reckon? I imagine it'll still go ahead. There's always uh, work to be done. And this kind of... When you have a, a lander that's so far away, it's right. the, it, it, you can't control remotely. They're it took like seven months or something to get there. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's crazy. Imagine I, trying to be a person <sighs> sitting for seven months in a tiny capsule. Well, that's the thing. It's um, That's an interesting point. I think that with all these unmanned missions to Mars, it's a really good idea. We've got to test all this technology. We can't send people everywhere. But it is something that we want to think about developing is the, the manned technology as mm. well, right? If Would we you go to Mars if you had the opportunity? I wouldn't. Yeah, no, I would not now. go to Mars. Um, <laughs> I like the Earth. Uh, <laughs> but you've like, not been to Mars. I it like could be sea. amazing. The culture would be completely new. Yeah, it would be completely new. More ways than one. Yeah. So I personally wouldn't go, but I do realise that it's probably quite important that we develop this technology. Um, right. And that's the one of the hard things about human spaceflight is obviously the protection. And that's right. something that you don't hear a lot about in the news at the moment. We are very focused on sending machines, aren't we? It's true. So. Well, the Chinese just um, had their, I think, longest successful space flight to date. Uh, Tiankong 2, Heavenly Palace, China's sixth and longest piloted space flight to date. So I've only been peripherally following this, but I understand they've been successful. They've been in communication. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I think China's mm. possibly one of the only countries right now that's actively sending people into space. I mean, we've got Tim Peake. We, well, there. apart from the he's on Earth space. right now. Oh, he's come down. Yeah. <laughs> he was in Manchester last Saturday. Was he? Yeah, oh, he no. was giving a talk at um, the Museum of oh, it wasn't Science and Industry, the one on the train station. Oh, if I'd known, I'd have tried to accost him for an interview. That oh, well. great. <laughs> um, yeah, but maybe maybe you're right. It is good to see someone's working on that side. Of uh, everyone's always working on that side of things, mm. but it's nice to hear about that in the news. Right. Right. And China's been spending so much money on astronomy and space science recently. Oh, yeah. Well, they've just um, developed the... Well, they've just finished and inaugurated the largest 
single-dish radio telescope in the world called FAST. That was inaugurated, I guess, this month, October. Right. Um, and it is a massive, massive telescope. It's So FAST stands for the 500-metre Aperture Spherical Telescope. Um, it's it's a, a massive fixed-dish telescope that's 500 metres in diameter. And that's huge. For reference, the second-largest telescope is called the Arecibo telescope and that's 300 meters in diameter and our own Lovell telescope is only 76 meters to be diameter. fair though Lovell is fully steerable it is fully steerable <laughs> it's which the is third a largest advantage. fully steerable dish in the world it is a massive <laughs> advantage so in order to see things with fast obviously if you're not faced in the right part of the sky uh, you've got to wait for the uh, after rotate. So, will you be able to use FAST for your pulsar research, Charlie? Me, myself? I'm not sure. I'm not sure at all. Um, I am very focused on using the Lovell along with the other telescopes in the UK, uh, which make an array, an interferometric array called E-Merlin. Um, and so these are much smaller, but when you combine lots of radio telescopes together, you can do uh, interferometry, which is basically you can look on smaller scales in the sky and you can look for yeah, much weaker sources. And I know that you do that as well, Minnie. My favourite soundbite about very long baseline interferometry is something like, if I stand in New York, I can read a newspaper that's in Los Angeles because my resolution is so insanely high. That's a, I love those little analogies, like things that you're doing in science. It was like, my, my favourite one about fusion was that if you had a swimming pool full of water and a laptop battery full of lithium, or the amount of lithium that's in a laptop battery, you could power all of Chicago for a year. That's incredible. I that's mean, so cool. It's it's like a ridiculous statistic because you're having to assume so much about your reactor and everything, but it, it's it's a good fun thing to think about. We were trying to make up lots of these analogies um, in the summer because uh, some of the people here were working on what became known as AstroTram. I think, mm. which was uh, basically a science busking event that was done around Manchester where they commandeered trams and they had uh, Brian Cox on the on the messages saying, you were on the Astro Tram and telling you facts. And people so with cool. boards and people with questions and all sorts of questions like this we were trying to come up with. So that was a, I think we mentioned it back at, back at the time. I'm yeah. sad I missed it. But the only analogy that I ever hear around here is the analogy that a neutron star is about the size of Manchester. That's, uh, <laughs> that's one of the things about working in the Pulsar group here. Uh, yeah, Tetsuo, um, brought that into his lecture on, uh, on neutron stars. Oh yeah, you hear it, you hear it every time. <laughs> Um, but quickly back to fast, we we did say that it was a fixed dish. Actually, it can point. Oh. oh. It has an active surface, which means that you can rearrange some of the uh, the surface of the dish, change it to a different shape, and point at different places on the sky. They can change the shape of their 500-meter dish? Yeah, well, each... Each panel, so this, this thing has, this dish is made up of lots of, lots of individual panels, and these panels are attached to pulley systems, and these pulley systems can move and they can adapt the surface of the, of the dish. That's because so cool. even though it's a 500 meter dish, not all of that is illuminated at all times. So you can change which bits are illuminated with the, uh, uh-huh. with the adapted surface, and that basically means you can point it. And obviously it's not as good as being able to point the level in any direction, but You've got a 500 meter dish, so. But. I feel like you there's a little bit of insecurity, like you feel like you're cheating on the level. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, it's okay, you can use other telescopes. <laughs> the lovely level, yeah. Um, 
Right. Yeah. So you were talking about interferometers. Um, I think the last I followed on the BBC, the GMRT, the Giant Meter Wave Radio Telescope, was um, trying to observe Schiaparelli, and I think they got about a minute of data before it cut out. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much all I had about sad Schiaparelli. We've Did we actually heard. talk about what Schiaparelli is meant to be doing on the surface? It's only meant to be active It's a for test a, for a whether days, it lands. Right? It's yeah. just a landing test. There, I were mean, no, there were no things about taking... Uh, well, we're not going to get it back. It's going to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly. So, yeah. So, basically, the main thing is to test how to land, whether we know how to land successfully on Mars with these new technological advances. Um, it does say that they'll do a little bit of work, but its scientific mission will only last a few days because it's based on the battery power. And the reason they're landing where they are, the Meridiani Planum, is a side of interest because there's likely rust or iron oxide, which implies there might be water. Mm-hmm. And at least on Earth, water equals life. What was the name of that place again? Um, Meridiani Planum. Okay, good. I just want to plug Google Mars again, because I yeah. mentioned this on the Jodcast last time I was uh, presenting. And I just think it's such a cool website. So you can go to this and have a look at this landing site on Google Mars and find out all this information about things that are nearby and the, the features around it and actually see the surface of Mars where this lander has gone, just like you can on Google Maps. It's great. I've got to say, even though this this uh, landing might have gone a little bit wrong, it's a really exciting time that we're living in, isn't it, with SpaceX and Google Mars yeah, and yeah. collaborations between all of the uh, different astronomical communities. It's really cool. Did you hear about the fact that I think Curiosity... Every year, by himself or by itself, sits there and sings happy birthday to itself. It's so sad. Isn't, isn't it, it the saddest really? image? It's heartbreaking. It heartbreaking. <laughs> I have heard that, yeah. I wonder it's what... like a really sad MIDI version of it as well. It's like oh. really like whiny. Oh. I guess I guess they planned ahead because happy birthday's only just got into the public domain, hasn't it? But I guess maybe you're outside <laughs> the uh, constituency of... That's an interesting copyright question. Yeah. If you play a song that's copyrighted that nobody hears... <laughs> mm. <laughs> It's like the, if a tree falls in a forest. There you go. <laughs> Something about a bear. <laughs> Bears on Mars, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Poor curiosity. <laughs> Poor curiosity. Poor Schiaparelli. Maybe we should have called it yeah. <laughs> melancholy. Melancholy. <laughs> that's how you pronounce that. Melancholy. <laughs> Does anyone have any happy odds and ends? Uh, well, I've got one that's slightly happier. Um, so... I, I was looking up astronomy-themed Halloween costumes, because we're in the run-up to Halloween now, and... Uh, as a fully grown man, I I still like to participate in fancy dress from time to time. You're gonna avoid killer clowns, yeah? Yeah. Oh god, definitely. No, we're not not even touching on that. I'm so sick of hearing about it now. You know. Your hair would sort of work like a clown. Outrageous, Charlie. I'm not. Gonna... <laughs> Should I take a photo and put it on? Yeah. I forget sometimes that we're on. No, the, we can't. Have a photo. We got so. the. So I was looking for astronomy-themed Halloween costumes, and I I found that NASA does an annual Halloween costume competition. And I was going to complain about how terrible the, qualities, the quality of these are because I thought it was NASA employees, but it turns out it's a public competition. No, no NASA employees are allowed to enter, so it kind of... It makes sense that the, the quality that they're drawing from, people who read NASA's blog, is probably smaller than the 18,000 people that work for NASA. Um, so I won't be too mean, but... I think you could do better out there, guys. So you have a look at some of these costumes and... Send us some of your best, like if you've got kids and you've given them, you know, a little Curiosity Rover costume or something. Or if you've dressed up yourself, you don't have to be. Yeah, kidding. or if you've dressed up yourself. I've definitely seen a dog dressed up as the Curiosity Rover. Oh man, that's great. Yeah. 
That's singing really happy birthday to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd try it with my cat, but I don't think she'd be very pleased about that. Yeah. Love to see a photo. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, so if you've got any good ideas, there is the NASA competition. I think you can win like a swag bag from NASA if you, if you have a really good one. Is it open to UK listeners as well? Uh, it didn't specify on the website, so I would imagine. But yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, has anyone here got any good ideas for Halloween? For a Halloween costume, strongly yeah. themed. Ball of hot gas, like a star. Hot gas. A ball of hot gas. How would you how would you do that? You know, that's a good question. Roll around in petrol and light myself on fire doesn't seem to be a good idea. No, maybe not. <laughs> I'm just imagining dressing up as a radio telescope too fair and wearing a massive flea collar to use as the Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. We have made, I forget one time whatever school I was at, people had little headbands and we made little dishes and then we stood together as an interferometer and did an interpretive dance. That sounds amazing. Because interferometry. Max has talked about interpretive dance before yeah. in the podcast. Yeah, Philippa, my um, supervisor, Professor Philippa Browning, she was involved. She was a consultant, the science consultant for an interpretive dance troupe that were going into schools to teach people about the solar system. Awesome. <laughs> so she, w- I think it was she was uh, teaching them about flares, and they did some sort of like explosion from the surface of the sun through their arms the, out the solar wind up to earth and then the aurora and stuff so yeah they did the whole like sun earth cycle so they collapse into black holes and duck down into <laughs> the fetal position or... I, don't, I don't know if they went that deep yeah we can plan something on the topic of costumes I know it's not yet Christmas but the shop seem to think it is one thing that does happen some years here is our very own Tim O'Brien dresses up as Father Christmas Ooh. <laughs> um, no, I didn't see this last year. I've heard. I didn't rumors. see it last year either, but mm. I hope I do. I really hope I do. He's got the beard for it. He needs to dye it white. We can yeah. just stress him out a little. Mm. But we will. We, <laughs> I'm sure we could. We'll need to get a picture of that and put that on the website when that happens. So yeah, if anyone has any ideas about costumes, but we could dress up as like effects. You could do diffraction patterns. You could do refraction patterns. Nice. You could go as an array of telescopes. Oh, I can think of so many astro-themed things. Oh, you've given them so many ideas. So if anyone <laughs> manages to, to execute any of these, let us know about it. No matter how terrible, I want to see it. Sounds or great. how great. Or how great. <laughs> or how great. I want to see someone dressed up as a black hole. No, that would be something, wouldn't it? That would be so cool. You'd only see the event horizon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, talking about black holes, supermassive black holes, in fact. Um, this is quite a convoluted thing, but my own end involves the Jogcast itself. Some of the people from the Jogcast were actually interviewed rather than doing the interviewing. Um, myself, Ben Shaw, George Bendo, and Adam Averson were all uh, called up to be interviewed for a new up-and-coming student radio station on Fuse FM called Rocket Science. Oh, that's punny. That is. <laughs> it's called Rocket Science because it blends talk about science with rock music. And so they talked to us about the Jogcast. Um, they asked us why we did it. They, we actually spilled some secrets that we've never ever talked about here. Some Sometimes when the website goes down and we don't actually specify why, you, you might be able to hear about that if you go and listen to the um, to the interview. So yeah, there's some Get the juicy inside in scoop. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... It was broadcast, or it will be broadcast on the 21st of October 2016 at 1.30pm, which will be too late by the time this episode goes out. But they hope to have a backlog of podcasts online. So hopefully you'll be able to listen to us there and we'll link you to it in the show notes if you can. Um, and if you're interested in listening to this radio station, it sounds really cool. They have a Twitter account, which is at rock underscore it science. Um, and so, yeah, one of the things that we talked about 
was astronomy related songs. Um, and Adam then went on to send these guys a list of songs that he thought of. Uh, there was lots of David Bowie on there. I love astronomy-related songs. My favorite one is, um, do you know the They Might Be Giant song? I think it's like, The Sun is a Massive Incandescent Gas. No. Oh, it's such a great song. When I was in, I think, second year Astro, we had a pop quiz. And this is my favorite pop quiz of all time, because it was just multiple choice. And um, uh, Professor Prentice, Andrew Prentice, gave us this pop quiz. And question one was something like, the sun is A, a massive incandescent gas, B, a gas of indeterminate mass, C, so on and so forth. It was so great. <laughs> I passed that pop quiz. So special place in my heart for that oh, song. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they might be giants. Had a few, didn't they? Why does the sun shine? Was that another one? Was that one? That, I don't, I don't I know that remember. one. The only other Astro song that I really like is the Monty Python one, the galaxy song. But it bothers me because all the units are in miles. So, you know, obviously being Australian, we use kilometres. I don't understand this country. <laughs> there are loads, though. There are, going down the list that Adam uh, linked to, I mean, he liked, well, we all like David Bowie here. Uh, Life on Mars, I guess we're not going to find that out with ExoMars anyway. Oh, so um, sad. The TGO might. <laughs> um, there's Muse, Supermassive Black Hole. There's Neutron Star Collision, which yeah. was a song referenced by Tetsuo Hatsune in yeah. his talk. So they, uh, Muse wrote a song for the Twilight film called Neutron Star Collision. Uh, and Tetsuo, <laughs> Tetsuo played this in his talk, um, because he, he states that they predicted the Neutron Star Collision before it's been recorded. It's still yet to be recorded. We're waiting for more, uh, gravitational wave data. So maybe. A Nobel Prize for Muse. Yeah. You never know. Uh, there wouldn't be for literature. No, I guess. no. Um, what else was that? Well, there's even heavy metal on there, to be honest. There's Metallica have a song called Orion, and I think the Misfits are heavy metal as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they've got a song called Teenagers from Mars. So I checked this, and apparently, according to their Wikipedia page, the Misfits are horror punk, which is a, a terrifying genre. Well, that's good for Halloween. Yeah. This is quite an appropriate episode. It's all wrapping well and very nicely. But um, if any of the listeners have any ideas for astronomy-related songs, tweet us or email us with them. Um, and definitely check out the, the show Rocket Science as well. Uh, they're a cool bunch of people. It yeah. was a really, really fantastic It's interview. a cool idea because you don't get many talk radio stations that have a like specific subject and a music mm. thing going. And yeah. I think there's a strong cross-section of astronomers who like rock music, right? So it's a good... We did tell them to... Uh, play the Joe Cast theme tune on there. But I don't know if that would ever happen. <laughs> oh, we'll have to get like a heavy metal version of it recorded. Oh. Now, to hear about heavy metals of a different sort, Ian answers your astronomical questions in this month's Ask an Astronomer. Hello and welcome to Ask an Astronomer. I'm Alex Clark and I'm here with Ian McDonald, who's going to answer your questions. First question is from Yoda the Oak. I'm trying to get my head around the production of metals from a star to the ring on my finger. If stars, when exploding, produce metals and other complex elements, do we know how much metal a star could make just from its light emitted? Is there a process from exploding star to planets? Well, the story of how you get metals from the heart of a star to the ring on your finger is a complicated one. It's actually the very story I'm trying to piece together at Jodrell Bank. See, most jewellery is made up of the transition metals in the periodic table, which astronomers consider to be heavy elements. These elements are heavier than iron, and there's two kinds of star in which these are made. About half the heavy elements get produced when a massive star undergoes a supernova explosion at the end of its life. These are known as the R-process isotopes, and the other half are made during the final phase of the life of slightly smaller stars, like the Sun, or a few times the mass of the Sun, and they're referred to as the S-process isotopes. Now, depending on which element your ring is made out of, it may have come from either kind of a star. For example, iron, gold, silver and platinum are typically formed in supernovae. 
while the copper and the various silicate mixtures that you find in gemstones come mostly from lower mass stars, and some elements, like the carbon and diamonds, come from both kinds of a star. But wherever it comes from, it has to get out of the star, and in the case of smaller stars, the star slowly shakes itself apart during the asymptotic giant branch phase, spreading dusty seeds throughout the galaxy, a bit like a giant puffball, before becoming a planetary nebula. In the case of larger stars, which have to be at least eight times larger than the Sun, the star runs out of fuel, collapses under its own gravity, and then violently explodes, hurling its innards out into space in a supernova explosion. Now we can work out what the star has created by taking a spectrum of the material it's thrown off. For smaller stars, we can do this while the star is still alive, by looking at the elements and molecules which condense in the wind that flows out from the star. But in either case, we can do a post-mortem of the star, and look at the planetary nebula or supernova remnant that it's left behind. The spectrum of each of these remnants is composed of a series of lines or bands, and the wavelength of light that these are found at correspond to a particular element or molecule. And the strength of these lines tells us how much of each element there is. But this doesn't tell us about every element. Some elements don't have strong lines at wavelengths that we can easily access from Earth. Gold, silver, and platinum are among these because they're so rare, and as a result of that they're rarely measured in stars. For these elements we have to use models. These models are based on a combination of nuclear theory and theories of stellar structure. They model the entire life of the star, and they work out where the elements are produced and when, and how they are released. And if these models can be tuned to match the abundance of the elements that we see, and the abundance of the elements in the solar system, then we can work out how much there is of the ones that we can't see. Once these newly produced elements leave the star, they're spread across the host galaxy. Some work their way into dense clouds of matter that collapse and form stars, and some of those atoms may end up in planets around that star. Some of those atoms may end up on the surface of a planet with life, which is either intelligent or stupid enough to go around digging it up, and some of those atoms might be forged into a ring to go on a finger. But it's perhaps a little curious that a ring, which is often the symbol of a permanence of a union between two people, should be forged in the death of something as apparently constant as a star. Very interesting. It's a great answer there. So the next question comes from Philippe Lariche, and they say, Please can you explain why cosmologists and GR gurus get so upset about information being lost as stuff falls into a black hole? Why can't they just treat it like spilt milk? It's gone. Get over it. Well, if only it were that easy. Information's a bit like energy. Quantum mechanics dictates that it can't be entirely copied, and it can't be entirely destroyed. It can be sort of copied through quantum entanglement, and it can be garbled up so much that it can be all but destroyed. But if you're omniscient, and could deconstruct everything into its purest waveform, you should still be able to rewind the universe and see what was originally there. So if you have a piece of paper, and shred it, it's still technically possible to put the pieces back together and retrieve the information on it. Even if you burn the paper, collect all the ashes, bury it in a shallow grave and never speak of it again, you could still technically retrieve the information if you knew the exact quantum mechanical details of all the intervening processes. So it is with all information, including the information describing the particles that are falling into the black hole. Now, if information falls into a black hole, that's fine. It's stored in the black hole and it doesn't go anywhere. Except that there's a problem. That problem is Hawking radiation. Now, if you've never heard of Hawking radiation, it might be a little bit difficult to get your head around unless you take the time to understand it. But I'll have a go here anyway. First, you have to accept that pairs of particles spontaneously appear out of the vacuum of space, and then spontaneously annihilate each other across all of space and all of time. Now, it's weird, but it's true. We've shown this happens, um, and we can demonstrate it happens using the Casimir effect. Then you have to imagine that a pair of these particles uh, spontaneously pops into existence on the event horizon of a black hole. And before they can annihilate each other, one gets sucked into the black hole, while the other escapes. Now, the escaping particles borrowed energy from the vacuum of space around the black hole, and it needs to give it back somehow. 
it does that by taking a little bit of energy from the black hole. And by equals mc squared, that takes away a little bit of the black hole's mass. So the black hole gradually shrinks one particle at a time. And here's the problem. Eventually the black hole will disappear. It'll evaporate. But what's happened to the information that fell into it? Has it gone? Well, no one really knows. It may be relativistically stored on the horizon of the black hole and escape with the Hawking radiation. But problems occur once a certain fraction of that information is leaked out. Either way, there's a problem. If the information disappears, that means that quantum mechanics is incomplete. If it doesn't disappear, that means that general relativity is incomplete. So solving the problem has major implications for fundamental physics. And you might think this is all very esoteric and doesn't matter. But if general relativity itself wasn't discovered a century ago, modern GPS navigation would be an impossibility. And who knows what our great-grandchildren might be missing out on if we don't understand this next key piece of physics. Okay, so the next and final question comes from Paul Stevenson. Given the confirmation from NASA of liquid water on Mars, is it time to revisit the results of the Viking lander test back in 1976? I understand the mass spectrometer used to confirm the findings was much less sensitive than the experiment intended to test for microbial life. Well, the question of whether there's life on Mars has excited both scientists and the public alike since Schiaparelli first noticed his channels in the Red Planet back in 1877. It's a key question that has major implications. If life arose on two different planets in the same solar system, it astronomically increases the chances that life is present elsewhere in the universe. I've even got a textbook from the 1960s that unequivocally states that there is life on Mars and soliloquizes about its inhabitants. But by the time we flew past Mars in 1965, it was abundantly clear that the little green men just weren't there. The main problem is that the Martian atmosphere just isn't thick enough. It's been just that little bit less dense that needs to sustain liquid water. Water can only exist on the Martian surface as either solid ice or steam, and without liquid water there can be no life, at least life we would recognise. Worse still, without a protective magnetosphere, Mars's surface is subject to much harder radiation than we would find on Earth. So even though the mass spectrometer and other instruments aboard Viking weren't that great, there's probably still little point looking for life in that data, or in any other surface mission. So there's no life on Mars. But there is still a faint glimmer of hope that there might be life in Mars. Beneath the surface, pressures are higher, and aquifers might exist. It's still not entirely proven whether the streaks seen in some craters are evidence that thermal springs are working their way to the surface. It's a strong possibility, and we won't know for certain until we go there and sample one. Their existence suggests that there is still some notable hydrological or hydrothermal activity on Mars, despite the lack of surface water and plate tectonics. And these deposits may be able to tell us if there's life on Mars now. So one possibility is to go there, to these hydrologically active sites, and dig down under the surface to see what's there. But most scientists aren't hopeful, and the ones controlling the budget would rather look for the fossilised signatures of ancient life from back in the most ancient times of Mars when it still had surface water, and to understand why Earth thrived while Mars desiccated. That information is more likely to exist. They could still answer the same questions, but broadening our understanding of the evolution of planets. Thanks for that, Ian and Alex. And now on to the feedback. We've had no post, but we've had had some emails. Um, there's an email from Greg Bernstein, who says, I went to um, went to iTunes to review the Jodcast. I discovered it's been eight years since I last reviewed it. Please keep up the good work. Gee, I could just bask in all of this, you know, <laughs> lovely praise. Um, a, yeah, a really nice email. Thanks a lovely email. Yeah, Greg also says that the in-depth interviews are extremely interesting. Um, he lives in an area with light pollution, so can't really take advantage of the information about the night sky. Hey, Greg, drive we out into that the feeling. country. Yeah. <laughs> we know that feeling in Manchester. Oh, right? Yeah. Um, but I do like this. 
However, giggling, bracket, Fiona, close bracket, or close parentheses rather, and other mirth on the show is welcome. Keep up the excellent work. Well, thanks for that, Greg. Yeah, that's a great email. Long-time listener as well, eight years since you last reviewed it. We've had a few tweets as well. One was from Adam Averson of the Jogcast, who asked whether the new picture for the Jogcast episode, October 2016, was revenge for the show being out so late. So firstly, I wanted to say I am very sorry that the show was out so late. Uh, it came out about the same time as the extra probably should have gone out. Um, and that is for a variety of reasons. We have had a few days, as Adam mentioned in the September extra episode, uh, where we've been fixing lots of the old code that the uh, Jogcast runs on. We've been doing things to the machine. Um, and it took a lot of time, but it's going to be very useful in the future and hopefully make us more efficient in the future as well. Uh, that was one of the reasons that things were delayed because stuff that we did went wrong with that and so it took us a lot of time to debug and fix that. We did have a few issues with uh, certain parts of the Jogcast episode coming out a little bit later than planned as well. Um, maybe that picture was a reference to that. I I don't know. The, the person in the picture seemed to think it quite funny anyway. I so. thought it was quite appropriate for the Halloween. Mm. You know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, I think... A certain somebody sent an email saying that the the face was quite off-putting, which Matt found very, very sad. Aww. <laughs> so, Tell so Matt he's you, beautiful. <laughs> if you liked that picture, uh, let us know. Yeah. If you didn't... If you didn't, also let yourself. us know, actually. Um, <laughs> but try and make it not as personal. <laughs> yeah, mm. Nothing about the face in particular. Don't tell us why you didn't like it, if it's about the face itself. <laughs> if you just think it's not appropriate for the job cast, then that's fair enough. Um, we won't be doing that every week. So we got another one from Daniel Carazone. Just listening to the discussion of comments from the survey. Heartily endorse hashtag Jodon. Love that hashtag. Thank you, Daniel. Um, you should also check out Flickr to see some of the new images our listeners have posted. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website, www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post the addresses on the website. So for this episode... Thanks to Professor Tetsuo Hatsuda and Mitch Mikalaija for the interviews. The editors were Charlie Walker, George Bendo, Luke Hart, and Monique Henson. And the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, join on! on.